Imagine that it's your goal and desire to maybe buy a small plot of land out in the country south of Lakeville, and you're getting a little bit serious about it, so you are talking to realtors about it, and there's a couple of properties that are available, so you decide on one Sunday afternoon with your family to just head out and take a look and walk through the land. And it's a beautiful day, beautiful spring day, and the grass has turned green, the summer has come upon us, and that land is beautiful with rolling hills, and there's even some grains to your right hand as you walk on the hills of this land that you're thinking of purchasing, and a big grove of oak trees on the left-hand side. And you're thinking, this is pretty good. And as you're thinking, this land's pretty good, you, you hit your toe on something. And you think it's a rock. So you turn around and you look to see what you stub your toe on. And it is a something metal. It's popped out of the soil and it's got a sharp corner on it. So you take a rock and you dig it out and you break it open with that rock. And lo and behold, this little tin box is filled with what appears to be real diamonds. So you look to your left and you look to your right and you find the realtor's number in your phone and you buy that piece of property. I'll take it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Brothers and sisters, it just makes sense. If Jesus is our greatest treasure, it makes sense when our joy and in Jesus, our affection for Jesus, far surpasses other treasures, other beauties in this world. It just makes sense. And something is dreadfully wrong in our own lives when we value other things in this world. The praise of men, the stuff of this world. When we value those things more than we value Jesus Himself, who He is and what He has done for us, what He is doing for us, and what He's promised to do for us forever. There's something wrong when the intensity of our affections for Christ don't match His person. It doesn't make sense. This is actually the main point of the text before us this morning. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to that place. I want you to turn back. Brandon read 
The scripture and the passage itself that we'll be focusing on is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. John chapter 12, 1 through 8. So turn to that place. Take your Bibles, take your phones, get to that place. For our visitors, there is a bulletin insert. You can take notes if you'd like. Welcome visitors. I see a lot of new faces. And it's exciting to have you with us. The context here of John chapter 12 is that very recently, we're not exactly how much time has gone by, but it's pretty recent and just tremendous miracle has occurred. Lazarus has been <laughs> ripped forth out of the grave, walking like a mummy with the... And he's alive. And the Jewish leaders are realizing they're losing everything. And the followers of Jesus have realized they've gained everything, all in the same chapter. And Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. Yeah, we're all friends. He was a special close brother, a special close friend of Jesus. And this account is about really his sisters, Martha and Mary and a man named Judas. And in our passage, while it's probably not too long after the, uh, Lazarus has been raised, um, I know one thing is certain, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is only one week away at this point. So with that in mind, let's read one more time our passage this morning from John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So we're going to look at this Incredible account under three headings, just to follow it. The first one, you'll have to let me explain it, but the three headings of this text are first Mary's rapture, Mary's rapture, and then secondly, Judas's reaction, and third, Jesus's rebuke, and then we're going to look at our response, and our response can take half the sermon. We're going to drive this home. 
First then, in verse 3, let's look at Mary's... There's not a good word for it in the English language, but I'll just... It's a good R, so let's go with it. Mary's rapture for Jesus. Maybe you don't know what that word means. It means this overwhelming, intense joy and pleasure towards something else. It's a good word for Mary. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Okay, so John is a theologian, and John's mention of the Passover is a time marker, but he's always theologically driven. He's always trying to remind us, as he mentions the Passover, that the one who raised Lazarus from the dead is about to go in six days to his own death. And the Passover lamb and those houses in Israel that were slaughtered and the blood put over the doorpost. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The real Passover lamb is right here and he's being prepared for his death and his burial. And I think there's a hint not only of his death in the Passover, but with Lazarus sitting right there, there's a hint of the whole gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the context, and what's going on here is a celebratory dinner in honor of Jesus in Bethany. Risky stuff. Two miles from Jerusalem, they're looking for him. They're looking to lynch him up. They're looking to kill him good. So, he goes two miles away. He's still in hiding. And there's a celebratory dinner. And they are celebrating Jesus. Martha, of course, is serving. Expressing her love for Jesus. Lazarus was one, the text says, of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Now, I, can't, I have a hard time sometimes just getting my own family together for one meal, right? We're off to our schedules so quickly. Well, not in these days without electricity. These, were, these meals were events, and especially this one in the presence of Jesus was an event. And so you have this table. It's low to the ground, about a foot and a half off, and everyone would lay down on thin little mats, and they'd lay down, and their feet would be, it's like the table was the, the center of a spoke, and the spokes were the people, and their feet would be on the periphery. And they'd all lay on their left side, and they'd grab with their right hand, I'm not sure what left-handed, I don't know how that worked, but they would grab food, they would eat, they could lean back on their, their friends, and they would just talk, and they'd fellowship. And this is the scene that we find ourselves in in this passage. And then something astounding happens in this context. Look at it in verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The ointment 
was about 11 ounces of nard. Nard was an oil that was extracted from the root and spike of the nard plant, which, listen to this, was grown in India in the Himalayan pasture land. I mean, it's tough. That's hard to get in our day. So the cost of this pure nard was because it was pure and because of the, the long distance to export it, to import it into to, um, to Mary's home. So Mary in the past, I, I don't know how she came to possess such an expensive perfume, maybe a family heirloom, maybe this was Mary's and likely Mary's entire inheritance was wrapped up into this amazing ointment. It was very valuable. How valuable? Well, Judas tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. That doesn't sound like a lot. $300. I mean, that doesn't go very far these days. Out to eat with my family. Burns it. <laughs> now, to bring from perspective, though, a denarius was a full, one denarius was a full day's wage. One. So, if you consider the Sabbath when someone could not work, there was, this was equivalent to a full year's salary in that jar. Now, I, I don't know what the average salary is and all of that, but if you take it, the whole population, imagine 30, at least at least thirty to $40,000 by today's standards. And notice what she does with it. Her heart is so full of adoration, of love, of joy, of desire, of hope in Jesus Christ that suddenly, I'm not sure she planned it, the text doesn't say, she takes her family heirloom, she takes her inheritance, and she breaks an alabaster jar. I wonder how much a jar was worth. He, she breaks the alabaster jar filled with this pure nard and pours it all over the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, where did he pour it? She pour it. Well, over his head and body, according to Matthew and Mark. And now, and what John highlights, is she pours it over his feet. Now, in light of what John is doing, and in light of chapter 13 of the book of John, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right, we see the emphasis on this, the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's more than just humility. Look at John chapter 13. Just turn over there to verse 1. Now, uh, chapter 13 and verse 1 of John chapter and we'll get back to 11 to 12 in a second, just one page over. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the end, who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And so, and so, He got down on His knees and took the garments of a slave and wash their feet. It was love. It was humble love. And we are meant to see this in the heart 
of Mary. There is a fullness of love and gratitude for Jesus. She just loved Him so much, but it was a humble, submissive, self-effacing kind of love that takes the lowest place, that wants to see Him exalted. That it, it, It's just this mingling in Christianity that's true, and you know it, of this love and humility that is born out of, out of the heart. And so this is confirmed by the fact that she loves Jesus by the fact when she does the unthinkable. She lets her hair down. And she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. For a woman to use her prized hair, her glory, to wipe Jesus' feet when normally only servants even dare to touch their master's feet, their hands. That indicates just the depth of her... What word do you want to use? Humble, submissive affection and an adoration for Jesus. Further, for a woman to let her hair down like that in the presence of men in that culture would be considered a disgrace by many in that room. I might tell you something about Mary. She could care less at that moment. There's one thing about a love for Jesus. It absolutely kills a fear of man when it's happening in your heart. And so with Mary, she's like, yeah, money's gone. Yeah, uh, it's gross. Yeah, the, uh, all the disciples that I've been trying to you know, show my, you know, belong for all these years. And they're kind of... Mary expresses her heart of love for Jesus. Her gratitude for... Well, Lazarus, he's alive, first of all. Jesus delayed. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He wept with them. He's been speaking about being the resurrection and the life. Mary's been rescued from a life of sin. Lazarus is alive. She is free. She is forgiven. Jesus, thank you here. Take it all. You are worth it. I give you my best. You're so much better. It was nothing. He was worth it. I want to please Him. I want Him to know as I think He's departing how much I love Him. I don't care the cost of it. I don't care what other people think about it. That is Mary in this passage. But it just makes sense. Because the intensity of Mary's affection corresponds to the supreme value of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was her buried treasure and she joyfully bought up the land. Jesus was the pearl of great price and she was more than willing to sell all that she had to have Him. And the fragrance of the perfume. John's saying this, and he's speaking, yes, of the smell, but of just the picture of the sweet smell of love. Extravagant love for Jesus Christ. So rapture, 
feeling an intense pleasure or joy and affection, it's close. But it is an R, right, Brandon? It is an R. And that leads us to the second point. Judas's the contrast could not be more shocking. Get ready for it. Put your seatbelts on. Judas's reaction to Mary, number two. Notice what Judas says. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now what Judas says makes sense to some degree, right? Come on. On paper, I mean that could feed many, many, many poor people. So Judas, I'm telling you, guys, Mary looks like the criminal here. Judas looks like the hero here. The spiritual one. He looks like the honorable, altruistic individual. And in fact, and I don't know which came first, Judas or the other disciples. In fact, the parallel passages say that the other disciples also became indignant against Mary. That's a nice word for anger. I like it when we use nice words for anger, like frustration and stuff. They became indignant against Mary. Judas probably started it. The disciples catch on. And Mark tells us that some even scolded her. But notice what motivated Judas' statement in the text. You'll see it in verse 6, I believe. Yeah. This is the only place in Scripture where Judas is shown to be a bad apple before he actually betrayed Christ. Right here. So let's listen to it. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Okay, now the verb here that he was a thief is the type of verb that speaks of your nature, that speaks of ongoing activity. You can be, you can be a liar or you can stumble in a lie and struggle with it. Am I right? He was a thief. It was who he is from the core of his being. And he used to repetitively lift money from the apostolic money bag. Judas was put in charge of it. He was incredible to be put in charge of this. The tax collector, Matthew, he knew something about money. Why not put him in charge of it? Judas was put in charge of the money bag. Judas, now I'm just interpreting with some, you use our imagination, Judas probably hoped that gifts like this nard would be turned into cash and he could help himself. But when the pure spike nard was poured out, his opportunity is lost. At least two, I think, commentators suggest that in God's providence, 
this probably triggered the betrayal of Christ where 30 pieces of silver seems like a good opportunity. Judas's heart was filled with greed. It was all his overruling heart motivation. He had a heart that was not filled with love for Jesus, but a heart that was filled with love for money. Mary valued worshiping and loving Jesus. Showing Him humble adoration was more valuable to her than more than a year's salary. Mary loved Jesus and poured out at least $30,000. Judas loved money and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So the contrast is stark. Is, is sharp, black and white, between Mary's heart of love for Jesus and Judas's heart of love for money. So we've seen Mary's rapture. We've seen Judas's response. Was it response? No, reaction. And third, notice Jesus's rebuke of Judas. Look at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Leave her alone, Judas. She was right to perform this. Now, what does that mean? Let me, it's a little bit of a... It, Jesus was pretty short on his words here. I think he was probably quite loud at this moment. Certainly not sinfully angry. He was without sin. This is a rebuke. Let her alone, Judas. She kept it. Her perfume was kept and not sold to the poor in order that she might keep it. So many have explained that... Is this still on? Okay. Many have explained that, you know... Mary just acted better than she knew that um, she did this out of love, but she was in fact anointing him, but she didn't know that. It was just by the providence of God that prefigured the anointing of the body of Jesus with the aromatic spices in just a few days. It's possible that that is the case, but I don't think so. I want to ask, I'm going to ask top ten questions when I get to heaven. I'm going to ask Mary what exactly she knew when she poured that out. Because I'm telling you, as I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament authors and the Old Testament saints knew a whole lot more than we give them credit for. They had a messianic hope. And I'll tell you, who was standing at the cross of Calvary? The men had run. Who was there? I'll tell you, I think Mary knew what she was doing. In fact... The parallel passages hint at this. She, Mark chapter 14, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Or Matthew chapter 26, for when she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. So I'm just reading those words as they're read. And I just wonder what she knew from the reading of her Old Testament and the Messianic hope, Jesus had said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. And it says that the disciples' eyes were blinded. But what about Mary's? What about her eyes? 
What did she know? Perhaps more than we think. Perhaps by faith she had apprehended the death of Christ soon to come. She had realized what he had predicted, I believe. Perhaps she had learned more than we think sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word. Well, there's an explanation by Jesus in verse 8 of why to leave her alone. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Leave her alone, alone, Judas. You'll have the poor. Now, let me just be clear. Jesus is not saying to be stingy to the poor, to stop giving alms, to stop caring for the poor. Not at all. In fact, this verse actually indicates that it's very normal and expected and natural for, to care for the poor among us, especially of the household of God. And yet, without getting into this, because I'm already over time, our care for the poor is always in light of the cross of Calvary. It's, it's always in light of Jesus Christ. Help the poor, yet don't forget to give them Jesus. I think one commentator hits it when he says, the cross must control every aspect of the disciple's life, including almsgiving, in quotes. So don't take that the wrong way, that you shouldn't care for the poor. But what's astounding about this is what Jesus says about himself. I mean, who says that? Who can get away saying that, look, while I'm here, you don't care, you know, don't, you know, you'll always have the poor, but I'm here. It's astounding, and it's emphatic in the Greek text, but me, you do not always have the time for for gratitude and love and time and affection towards me are, are much shorter than then you might realize Mary's actions are appropriate. Leave her alone. D.A. Carson is right. Quotes, were a mere mortal to claim such priority, he would be very ill or unspeakably arrogant. End quotes. But Jesus can speak this way because he knows he's the God-man. The same essence and nature of the Father, that He is infinitely worthy of our worship, of our best. And Mary recognizes the preciousness of Jesus and perhaps the shortness of the time. It's like, when am I going to spend this? So she breaks it and pours it on her feet, on His feet. Let her alone for you will not always have me. Her expression of love matches, Jesus says, the value of me. Let her alone, Judas. So what is our response to this truth in the next few minutes? Finally, our response to this truth. We've seen... Mary's rapture for Jesus, Judas' reaction to Mary, and then Jesus' response or rebuke, sorry, Jesus' rebuke to Judas. What is our response to the truth? Okay, here we go. Put your seatbelt on. I want to warn you of something shocking in this passage.
Judas looked really, really good on the outside. He was entrusted with the money. He said the right things at the right time. He seemed concerned for the poor. The other disciples follow his lead. Yeah, Jesus, stop her. In fact, Judas in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Judas was one of the twelve apostles. Which is to say he was chosen after a night of prayer by Jesus. He was given authority over unclean spirits and the power to heal every kind of disease and sickness. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty effective. Think of what he had seen Jesus do with his own eyes. Think of the words of life that had fallen into his ears and into his mind. Think of the miracles that Judas himself had performed. He was one of the twelve apostles. He looks great externally. He handles the money. He's a theologian. And it reminds me of the sobering truth. And I want you to listen. Children, I want you to listen. This this passage woke my wife and I up in our early 20s. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not that Jesus didn't know mentally about them. The word know is a knowledge of intimacy, of relationship. I've never had a relationship. We don't know each other. We don't love each other. You're not one of mine. So, Matthew chapter 13. You got, remember the parable of the sower? We did it in Luke. I'm going to read Matthew's account. Matthew 13.22. Listen carefully. Matthew 13.22. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. And so when the heart, when the heart is softened, softened by the Lord and made to be good soil, the Lord makes the first move. You don't earn it. He comes to you in the day of His power. He softens your heart so that the seed of the Word of God would take root and bear the fruit of love for Jesus and hatred for sin. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Fruit of pouring out stuff grows out of a heart that God has made soft. But Judas's heart was hard. It was choked by the thorns. 
the deceitfulness of riches, for he was deceived to think 30 pieces of silver had more value than Jesus. The love of money rooted in the heart will always trump a love for Jesus. And a love for Jesus rooted in the heart will ultimately always trump a love of money. But a love of money blinds people to the value and glory of Christ. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Judas was devoted to money as an unrepentant pattern of his life. Money was his first love. It was his love over Jesus. He didn't have a clue. He really didn't from his own heart. He didn't have a clue what would move this woman to pour out this inheritance when I would like to pilfer it. Judas was blinded, he was hardened by his greed, and he sold the Son of Man for the price of a good lawnmower. But listen, listen to me, teens, everybody, listen to me. Yet, Judas looked really good on the outside. I, be I believe no one would have suspected Judas as the betrayer. He had been a follower of Jesus for three years. He heard all the teaching, all of that. But he didn't love Jesus. And I'm telling you, I relate. I was born again at age 27. I knew lots of stuff in my head. But I, was not, but I didn't love him until he opened up my eyes to show me my sin, to show me the beauty of who Jesus was. And I played a lot of games. I thought it was hilarious. Almost getting... Christian character of the year in my Christian school and all kinds of other things that we hid in the darkness. I looked like a good boy. I didn't get in trouble. I was a good student. A plus, plus 20 extra credit. I knew my Bible. But I loved the world more than Jesus. And I'd ask all of you, were you like me? Who wondered why no one told me this for 27 years from the pulpit. Or maybe I was just too deaf spiritually to hear. I don't know which it was. Are you saved? Are you born again? Do you love Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Or are you just playing games like I did for 27 years of excuses? Just ask Him. It's time to just give it over. It's time to, it's time to give your life to Christ. He's worth it. Just ask Him for a heart to love Him. He'll answer that prayer. So there's a warning here in Judas, is there not? But there's also an exhortation for true believers who come to this passage like me and like you and are convicted, right? That we are in many ways like Judas. Come on. No one else has the remainders of indwelling sin? Just kidding. No, this is for us. There's, there, in our lives, every day, there's competing loves. Isn't there not? Competing loves. There's a real possibility in our lives where for a time, money love can trump love for Christ. And 
And Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ or set apart Christ as Lord of your heart. Put Him back on the throne. And so we need to hear this passage. We need to be exhorted to, to resist the things of this world, the, the things, the idols of this world that would grab our heart and, the ta- and begin to take over and quench our faith and rob us of our joy and hinder our love for Christ, which always looks like bitterness and dissension in the body of Christ and less love for one another and not being able to love one another even through our failures. So I want you to just listen or take your Bibles if you're fast and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8. And I just want to reflect on these words about money for believers. Written to believers. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8. I have it in my notes. You turn. Paul writes to young Timothy as he's trying to pastor churches and all of that. In verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 8. If we have food and covering with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, he doesn't say money, he says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so what does it look like if you have money, but you have a heart that loves Jesus more? And guess what? That's all of us in this room in Lakeville, Minnesota. Okay, are you ready? So what does it look like then? The Lord's blessed us. What does it look like? To sanctify Christ as Lord of the heart, of, of our hearts. To love Him preeminently. Here's what it looks like. Let's keep reading in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And so this is how extravagant love for Jesus manifests with our money and our resources. This is, what is our alabaster jar? What is it? What is our most valued possession? What are, willing, what are we willing to sin in order to protect? Our bank account? Our position? Our home? What would we make available for Jesus' use? Mary humbly poured out her best because Jesus was worth it. Years ago, I was thinking of going into ministry. I met a man who was uh, pastoring and he was at a conference. We just met at the conference. I was talking to him. 
He was a new pastor of a very small Bible church, about 30 people. 30 people. I discovered that before he went to seminary and was preaching, he had a very lucrative law practice. And he left his lucrative law practice to train for ministry, and he's now pastoring this small church. And, and that's probably maybe not wise. You know, it's got to be the Lord. You know, maybe he should have stayed a lawyer and been a godly man in the church. I don't know. But for him, he was following the Lord. He was called to ministry. And his friends and his family thought he was nuts. I mean, he had a lucrative law practice. He was a genius. He should hear him preach. But he said, and I'll never forget where I was standing where he said this. He said, there's no comparison. To speak of the riches of the grace of God in Christ, for me, or practice law, for me, it's no comparison. Why? Because Jesus and His gospel and spreading that gospel were to Him more precious to Him than prestige, money, or reputation with the world. And He poured out His life on the feet of Jesus. Now, what does this look like then for us? Well, the answer of how we can have this heart of Mary is, is to not fix our hope on our money, believers, but to fix our hope on God. To set our hope on God. What does that look like, to set our hope on God? Okay? If we're ever going to have have any level of Christianity, we've got to understand we don't pour stuff on Jesus' feet and feed the poor and do stuff for mom and dad and work really hard and try to keep the commandments and all of this in order to be accepted by God, hopefully at the end. That is not the heart of Mary. The heart of Mary is a heart that was forgiven. A heart that was rescued from her sin. A heart that was born again. Right? And out of this heart of gratitude poured forth things to do to honor Christ. We must get that right. Because that's our hope. We have to set our hope on God, not on our works. We set our hope on Christ. So we've got to start reflecting on our great hope to, to be able to sort out the stress of money in this culture. Set your hope on God. Remember the day when you heard the voice of Christ and He became beautiful to you and He opened up your eyes to believe. Remember when you just simply trusted Him. You said, I'm turning from that way and I'm just naked and empty and hopeless and helpless, I'm turning to Jesus. I'm putting my hope in Him. And you trusted Him. And your sin was gone. All of it, past, present, and future. Removed from you as far as the east is from the west. And you were clothed in a perfect robe of His righteousness. Not your own righteousness. His perfect righteousness. You stand in Him. And He pulled you into His family. And you're part of the family of God. When you put your eyes upon that hope, when you reset your priorities, when your mind is set upon Jesus, thanksgiving for your great forgiveness wells up in you. And this is the way. This is it. 
This is how we gain any measure of victory over the idol of money. We set our eyes on the the priceless worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the really the how. The last takeaway for how this works. And we're going to move into it next week. So come on back as we get back into the book of Luke. We're reminded about Martha. We're reminded about Mary. And we're reminded that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to His Word. And the Lord answered and said in Luke 10.41, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, and it will not be taken away from her. Brothers and sisters, if, if we're just going to be so pulled by so many different things where we don't cultivate time just to gaze in, upon Jesus, to cultivate that love, to spend time in His Word. We don't have time to be quiet and have a relationship with Him. Then money is going to take over our lives. This is how we hope in God. We keep near the cross. We rest in His righteousness. We remember that it's finished. And in gratitude, we hold nothing back.